Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 92. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And today's episode title is Why You Should Stop Using Abnormal Saline, Normal Saline versus Lactated Ringers for IV Fluids. And today we're basically discussing some new evidence supporting the concept that maybe normal saline is, in fact, nephrotoxic to patients. This is an IV solution that we've been using for many decades. And it just so happens that relatively recently we have some data comparing normal saline versus another IV fluid called lactated ringers. And that new data suggests that we should probably change our, our kind of standard practice away from normal saline. Right. So, so Dr. Kane, um, I practice mostly in an outpatient setting. So what are some examples then of, of maybe when I, as an introduction, when are IV fluids generally used in a hospital? I know a little bit from when I teach my nutrition lectures, but in, in kind of general practice, what do you see them used for? Yeah, so basically there's like two uh, main modalities of why a patient might receive IV fluids. One is for maintenance IV fluid, meaning that the patient isn't taking adequate PO or can't take oral anything. It could be that they have an ileus, they have surgery coming up, or they just had a surgery, they're nauseated, they're vomiting. For whatever reason, you're basically trying to maintain their hydration status, and you do that by giving maintenance IV fluid. Now, the other thing that we do is IV boluses. So um, instead of kind of giving a continuous rate over a long period of time of an IV fluid, for someone who is hypotensive, someone who's bleeding, someone who you know is extremely dehydrated that needs to kind of get a lot of IV hydration very quickly, we can give them IV boluses. And this is very commonly done, especially in more critically ill patients. And the reason is that for low blood pressure, we have to give IV fluids for other therapies like vasopressors to work. Vasopressors won't work if you don't kind of tank up the patient with an adequate hydration through IV fluids. So IV fluids are incredibly common for hypotension, dehydration, and then people who can't take PO. Um, and we have a variety of different IV fluids are, that are available. But historically, normal saline is one of the most common IV fluids that we use both for uh, the hydration and boluses, but also even mixing drugs to give them IV. Normal saline is a very common diluent that we'll use to maintain tonicity in an IV product, but be able to mix it with another drug that we're trying to give the patient. Yeah, and so, so again, when we look at what is available, I remember in school something I, you learn about but don't talk about as much is the idea about these these crystalloids and colloids. So can you tell me a little bit about those two? Yeah, so crystalloid just basically means it's a, like a salt solution. So mostly this is going to be sodium and chloride making up the crystalloid component. But this is um, an electrolyte salt solution that you give to a patient, and those electrolytes have some degree of osmolarity, and that osmolarity maintains that fluid inside the vasculature. Um, so for example, with normal saline, it has an osmolarity of 308 milliosmoles per liter. And that means that when you give that patient that fluid, that sodium, that chloride will stay in the blood and it keeps that water in that IV fluid inside the vasculature as well. Now in contrast, colloids, an example of a colloid would be albumin or certain types of IV starches. These use oncotic pressure as opposed to osmolarity to basically stay in your blood. 
And we basically don't use these very often because they're quite a bit costlier than our crystalloid counterpart. And we, we have some evidence that actually some of these colloids like starches can be harmful for patients. So basically when we're using colloids, we're effectively talking about albumin. And because of cost, we don't use it that often. We use a lot more crystalloids. And for that reason, in, in the scope of today's podcast, we're really restricting our discussion only to IV crystalloids like normal saline. Right. So again, normal saline is going to be your standard default crystalloid. And so normal saline or 0.9 or also written as, as NS. And that's been the standard IV crystalloid for a long time, particularly I know in, in non-surgical patients. Yeah. And, you know, historically, the, there was a big fight between the medical specialty and the surgical specialties in terms of what is the best IV fluid. Uh, normal saline was kind of the flag bearer for the medical specialties, whereas lactated ringers was more the, the go-to agent for the, the surgical specialties. So it's interesting. I, I know, Dr. Kenny, you mentioned that, you know, talking about what's, what's considered normal. And it's interesting if you look at, you know, calculating it out, when we look at the actual amount of sodium that is in normal saline, you're looking at 154 milliequivalents per liter overall, which technically is hypernatremic if we're considering a plasma concentration somewhere between 135 and 145 as normal. So it's maybe not as normal there. Exactly. So if a patient receives too much normal saline, they will become hypernatremic because the sodium content of normal saline is too much sodium versus what your body prefers. So that is absolutely a problem with normal saline. Interestingly, though, the bigger problem is actually the chloride content. And in this case, the chloride content is 154 milliequivalents per liter, but your blood is around like 98 to 107, or we'll just effectively call it like 105. And this is a much bigger discrepancy than that sodium content. So if, again, we give too much normal saline to a patient, they will become hypernatremic, but they'll actually get very hyperchloremic. And we think that that excessive chloride load is actually one of the things that causes some of the harms associated with too much normal saline. Interesting. You also mentioned in terms of osmolarity that it's it's a little bit different there too. So 308 milliosmoles per liter would be what's considered for normal saline compared to in the, with the body, isotonicity is defined as 275 to 300. So again, a little bit of a difference. And interestingly as well, I believe is, is pH difference too within the plasma pH is 7.4. But with uh, normal saline, pH of 5.6 is significantly more acidic in that environment. Exactly. So one of the big problems is that we love to give normal saline for, let's say, a septic patient. And in sepsis, it's very common these patients will form anion gap metabolic acidoses from their lactic acidosis. It's ironic that they already have an acidosis, and then we give them liters and liters of this IV fluid that is also acidic in hopes that their acidosis will get better. Clearly, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So unfortunately, between its hypernatremia, its hyperchloremic nature, and its acidic pH, normal saline is really not that normal. And some people have kind of jokingly called this abnormal saline because of the fact that it does create electrolyte problems, especially if you give too many liters of this IV fluid. Now, Dr. Kane, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but if, if we're talking about how maybe problematic normal saline could be, there's got to be some sort of other type of uh, crystal way that might be available, right? Exactly. And this is where that surgical specialty comes in. They've really hung their hat on the concept of using lactated ringers or LR as their preferred crystalloid of choice. And they've really fought the medical specialties for decades saying that they think that their IV fluid of choice is better than the medical specialties normal saline. So it's interesting. You hear the name. So maybe ringers lactate, lactate. So 
is is ringer a person is ringer have to do with the the formula what what is the ringer part yeah so basically a physician by the last name of ringer was the first person to come up with what we now basically call today as lactated ringers so ringer's lactate is probably a more proper name for it but by convention we've kind of called it lr or lactated ringers instead and then what happened was another physician a pediatrician actually by the last name of hartman um, actually modified that to what we now have today which we call lr lactated ringers so some people will call this lactated ringers or ringers lactate. Some people will use that second physician's name and call it Hartman's solution. This is a little bit more common in other countries outside of the U.S., but that's basically where that name comes from. LR or Hartman's solution comes from the two physicians that were involved in the development of this IV fluid. And Dr. Kane, since you mentioned that some of the concerns with it were about some of the breakdown of sodium chloride, osmolarity, and pH, let's maybe start with their comparison. So how, how does this look in terms of sodium content versus normal saline? So this one is actually hyponatremic. So it has 130 millicoverts per liter of sodium, whereas your blood is closer to 135 to 145. So as opposed to making you hypernatremic if you get too much of this, this could potentially actually make patients hyponatremic instead. Chloride-wise, this is spot on. And again, the chloride was the big problem with normal saline. In LR, we have 110 of chloride versus physiologic. It's about, we'll say 105, 110, somewhere around that range. So this is much more physiologic than the 154 of chloride that normal saline came along with it. And then furthermore, I believe it also has some some potassium component as well too. So four milliequivalents per liter, which right around a normal range for potassium. And then I'm assuming that there's some sort of lactate involvement too. Exactly. So as the name suggests, they add lactate to the IV fluid. This is 28 milliequivalents per liter. And basically what happens is that lactate will eventually turn into bicarb in the liver. So that lactate hits the liver, turns into bicarb, and some component, maybe not all of it, will get converted into bicarb. It depends on how efficient that conversion process is. But um, you can kind of think of it as uh, if you give 28 milliequivalents of lactate to a patient, some of that or all of that could be potentially converted into some number of milliequivalents of bicarb in the patient. And then if you look at pH as well, we're talking 6.2. So it's still not exactly on there, but maybe a little bit closer to physiologic compared to normal saline, you know, 5.6 versus 6.2. Yeah. So way better. Maybe not exactly at 7.4, which is the pH that we would love to have, but this particular product is uh, not as acidic as normal saline. And then finally, the, the last thing in here is calcium. So it has six milligrams per deciliter of calcium in it, which is low compared to your blood, which normal blood is around eight to 10 of calcium, but it still has more than zero. And one of the reasons why the surgical specialty really likes LR is because you do need calcium to help your clotting factors work. So especially in that bleeding patient, that trauma patient, sometimes that calcium can be nice to have, although we can always give extra IV calcium if we need to as well. I believe there are other crystalloids on the market as well, too. So what are, what are some of these other things we can maybe consider, too? Yeah, so there are a number of other crystalloids that are very similar to lactated ringers. Um, and we call lactated ringers and these other crystalloids balanced crystalloids, meaning that physiologically they're similar or balanced to what normal plasma should look like. Some of the examples of these branded products include plasmolite, isolite, normosol. There's a bunch of other ones on the market. And then Many of those products also have very similar names, but slightly different concentrations of ions. Mostly the pH is a little bit different. So for example, we have isolate S, and we also have isolate S pH 7.4. 
And that latter product obviously has a pH of 7.4 versus isolate S without anything else with, within the name has a slightly more acidic pH. So again, basically all of these are very, very similar. The nuances are the pH and the exact electrolyte concentrations, but all of these are more physiologically balanced to be more similar to your plasma as LR is. The difference basically is that we've used LR for a very long time, whereas these newer products, these are products that are formulated by different companies and have slightly different variations. And typically, uh, to be honest, they don't have as much IV compatibility data, which is one of the reasons that we don't immediately grab these all of the time. And so similar to the other types of crystalloids we mentioned, these can be given both as maintenance IV fluids as well as an IV bolus. So something maybe along the lines of 80 to 125 milliliters per hour is a continuous IV, which would be about two to three liters per day. And again, also the option in cases where you need to push it a little faster as, as an IV bolus, maybe one liter over an hour, maybe a little bit less depending upon your IV access. So 999 mils per hour if the IV pump can't can't handle that that four digits of one zero zero zero. But yeah, we can go ahead and give it a bolus. Um, maybe even give multiple boluses at the same time if we need to. And if you look at you know especially some of the earlier septic shock literature, depending on how sick the patient is, they may get up to let's say 10 liters of IV fluid in the first day. But uh, I would say for the most part, most literature is moving toward a resuscitation volume of a couple liters is going to be what you'll typically give for that sick patient. And then beyond that, that's where you start reaching for vasopressors, for example, in that patient who is still hypotensive after that. Uh, but for the most part, I think we overcomplicate the dosing of these IV crystalloids. You give a couple liters IV bolus very quickly within an hour or two for hypotension. And for maintenance IV fluid, you're basically picking a number between 80 or 83.333, which is two liters a day, all the way up to 125, which is three liters a day. And that's a typical hydration for someone who's not taking PO. All right. So again, I think at this point, just to highlight some of the differences we mentioned, as you said, there's, there's nothing quite normal with normal saline. We're talking about higher sodium content, definitely, definitely higher chloride content, more acidity, and so maybe not as balanced as some of these other more balanced crystalloids, as you mentioned. Exactly. And again, lactated ringers is the, the main thing that we've used just because we've had it around for a long time. There are other products out there now, but these balanced crystalloids are just better in terms of the physiologic balance of electrolytes that they have and the pH that these have. It's more similar to your blood. Now, Dr. Kane, you make it sound as this is something, again, this is not a surprising fact. This is something that's been known for a while. So what has kept individuals maybe from embracing lactated ringers comparatively to others? So the number one reason is that if you're a medical specialist and you were trained with normal saline and you like normal saline because you're comfortable with it, um, your argument is, show me the data. And for decades, the argument was, if there's no data that says normal saline is causing trouble why would I switch? Um, that's how I train. That's how I learned. And I want to continue doing, you know, what I've done. And basically that was factually correct for a very long time, decades actually, where we didn't know whether the imbalances and abnormal saline actually caused a clinical difference, or if people were just getting worked up about clinically irrelevant numbers in a bag that, you know, your body can handle some degree of chloride. It can handle some degree of an acidic pH solution. The argument was maybe the body can adapt and it doesn't cause a clinical difference in outcome. Right. So I'm guessing then we have some new data available that we can jump right into? We do. All right. And uh, the two trials that came out relatively recently, within the last year, the uh, two trials are named SMART and SALT-ED. References are in the show notes. Again, this is episode 92 at helixtalk.com. 
Um, but these were kind of parallel trials done at the same institution. Um, so they're very similar in design, but they looked at different patient populations. And basically the design of the trial was comparing normal saline versus balanced crystalloids. And most of the time they used lactated ringers. They used a little bit of the plasma light isolate product, but for the most part they used lactated ringers. So effectively this was a normal saline versus lactated ringers study, uh, two studies actually. Yeah, so this was, um, again, for both trials, um, really a single center, unblinded, which just does bring in some some considerations. Pragmatic interest, so they really only controlled one aspect of patient care. Everything else was up to the clinicians. That's, again, interesting that obviously, you know, you control for the main thing, but uh, there's probably some confounders that that could introduce. And if you think about it, normally single center is not a good thing. You want it to be very applicable to a bunch of different centers. Usually unblinded is not a good thing. But one of the reasons that they were able to achieve the numbers that they did, which we'll talk about in a second, is that they did make it unblinded. They uh, made it very pragmatic where they didn't dictate all elements of care. It was just if you want an isotonic IV fluid for maintenance IV fluid or for IV boluses, you have to pick this particular product. Everything else about patient care from um, when antibiotics are given, what kinds of antibiotics, what you do for blood pressure goals, everything else was basically left up to the clinician. And that's okay as long as you have a ton of patients where kind of any random noise and chance is diluted out because you have thousands of people, which, which they did. And one of the reasons that, that they were able to do this was that they did a, what's called a cluster randomized study which means that instead of randomizing each and every patient, consenting them, saying, hey, we're running this study, we want to give you this IV fluid or this other IV fluid, instead of doing that, they randomized an entire unit. So either the ED or the ICUs were completely randomized to either get normal saline or LR for an entire month, and then they swapped back and forth every month. And that allowed them to basically give the study drug, the crystalloid, to all of their patients when they needed IV fluids, uh, again, every other month they're switching off, that unblinded nature of it allows them to be able to enroll a ton of people and give their study drug to a ton of people. All right, so just now to look at some of the breakdown of the individual studies. So as the first one I think you mentioned was the SMART study. So critically ill ICU cohort, five ICUs at Vanderbilt, and I think you already mentioned this. This was a very, very large study. 15, 000, is that right, 15,802 people enrolled? Yeah. This is gigantic for ICU studies. And again, the reason that they could do this was simply the fact that they had this cluster randomized design, pragmatic design, and they included a ton of different kinds of ICU patients. So I, I would be hard pressed to find a larger ICU study than this. This is like cardiovascular research territory here in terms of that number. All right, so what was the primary endpoint they looked for? So in the SMART trial, the primary endpoint was what they called major adverse kidney events within 30 days. And major adverse kidney events basically meant that you died, you went on dialysis, new dialysis, or your simcretinine doubled. All right, so let's, let's look at the results there. So ended up with, with normal saline, 15.4% of individuals met that primary endpoint compared to 14.3% lactated arenas. may seem like a a small difference there, but p-value 0.04, so statistically significant. With a number needed to treat of only 91, which is really pretty good. So the absolute difference was just above 1% difference. Uh, that's where that number needed to treat comes from. Effectively kind of proving or demonstrating that there is a clinical difference between normal saline and lactated ringers. And most of that difference actually was born out of the fact that normal saline was more nephrotoxic than lactated ringers was. 
And another interesting point to look at is is the amount of the fluid. So again, if if you think it is a problem with the solution itself, then then you know more of it would be considered to be more problematic. And so one thing they note is that relatively small amounts in the study, so median of a thousand milliliters given with an interquartile range of up to anywhere from none to thirty five hundred milliliters. And of course, if you think about it, if the median was a thousand. That means that that roughly 1% absolute difference we're observing is with roughly about a liter of fluid, right? So you'd expect that the amount of nephrotoxicity that you should observe is going to be a lot more for that patient that gets like six liters of fluid in that first day. I would, I would view this as very applicable to many, many patients because it doesn't take that much IV fluid to observe this difference of primarily nephrotoxicity. Now, what about, I guess, thinking about other endpoints, what about as far as mortality? What did this do towards the patients there? Yeah, so they looked at 30-day inpatient mortality, and they were so close. So normal saline had 11.1% versus LR had 10.3%. The p-value would make a statistician cry. It was 0.06. So they were so close, but not quite there in terms of showing an actual mortality difference among this critical care cohort. And then were there any important subgroups they looked at? I know you're big on sepsis. So what happens in that population? Yeah. So of that 15,000 patients, about 15% of them were sepsis patients. And again, sepsis patients tend to get a lot of IV fluids in that first six to 24 hour period. And what they found was the 30 day inpatient mortality of that sepsis cohort was normal saline 29.4% versus LR 25.2%. It was a significant p-value of 0.02 with a number needed to treat of 24. Again, this is a hypothesis-generating subgroup, meaning that this doesn't change our standard of care for sepsis patients. But it does kind of argue the point that there may be certain patients that would benefit more from switching from normal saline to lactated ringers or just never using normal saline, period, unless there's some compelling reason that you really need to use normal saline in those patients. All right, so we've kind of talked about the SMART trial, which is critically ill ICU cohort. Now, you said the other one was SALT-ED. I have a guess as far as what population this one was in. Exactly. So this is our non-critically ill emergency department cohort. And at Vanderbilt, they only have one ED. So this was a single center, one unit study. But again, I wouldn't beat them up too much for that because they actually had 13,000 people wow. enrolled. Again, gigantic wow. study. This is cardiovascular research territory in terms of the N here, which is really impressive. It's an important thing to look at as far as the, the endpoint. So a little bit different here, primary endpoint, days alive and free of hospital within 28 days. And I'm not a huge fan of this particular endpoint. Basically, they're trying to prove that you stayed alive and out of the hospital. And there was no difference here. The median days out of the hospital within 28 days and alive was 25 days in both groups. Basically, everyone spent a median of three days in the hospital and then they were gone. So again, in the SMART trial, they primarily looked at major adverse kidney events. In the SALT-ED trial, the primary endpoint was actually a failed endpoint looking at basically being out of the hospital. Right, so as you mentioned, the secondary endpoints, they didn't get rid of the major adverse kidney events. They just made that a secondary endpoint here in this case. So death, dialysis, or doubling of the serum creatinine. Found here normal saline 5.6% versus lactated ringers 4.7%. So again, right around a 1% difference. Statistic significant p-value 0.01. Number needed to treat here 111. And, you know, even though this was a secondary endpoint in a, a trial with a failed primary endpoint, this is a very different endpoint. And I think that it's reasonable to look at this, especially in the context of the SMART trial showing 
less nephrotoxicity. So we're, we're effectively seeing a similar treatment effect here in terms of less nephrotoxicity using lactated ringers, both in critical care patients, which was a SMART trial, and then non-critically ill patients in the SALT-ED trial. Now, in both studies, again, in this case, they also looked at mortality here. And so similarly, it was, you know, p-value, not significant, so 1.6% mortality rate with normal saline, a little bit lower, 1.4 lactated ringers, p-value 0.36, so nothing there. And to be fair, I don't know that you would expect to see a mortality difference. Just to put it into context, we're talking about 1.5% of people dying overall in the SALT-ED trial versus in the SMART trial, about 10% of people died. And in the sepsis cohort, about 25 to 30% of people died. So um, this is clearly like a very underpowered mortality endpoint. Um, we wouldn't expect to have a dramatic effect on mortality in these non-critically ill patients, but it's great that they still looked at it. So as we mentioned, another important thing to look at is going to be the amount of fluid that was administered, because obviously the, the more given with the um, normal saline, then potentially the more problematic. So here, median was similar, 1,000 milliliters with a range of one to 2,000. Now, it's interesting. It looks like that they excluded individuals receiving less than 500 mils from analysis in this study, which was a little bit different than in the prior study. Yeah, so if you look at the interquartile range for the SMART trial, some people got literally no fluid versus in this particular cohort, they excluded you if you got less than 500 mLs, knowing that a number of these non-critically ill patients would not get that much IV fluid before they left the ED. So knowing that they got rid of those outliers that got very little IV fluid, still we're observing this difference in nephrotoxicity with roughly about a, a liter of IV fluid as a median, which again emphasizes that if you have that patient that's getting two to three to four plus liters, there's probably a dose-dependent toxicity with normal saline, and we should be even more cautious to use normal saline in those patients. All right, so what can we learn if we kind of combine these two studies and make a big picture analysis? So in both trials, they did look at the surrogate endpoints of basically what happened to your CHEM7. So they looked at your sodium, for example, and if you got randomized to the normal saline arm, you had higher serum sodium levels versus lactated ringers, which is kind of what we would expect because normal saline has 154 millicolvins per liter of sodium. They also saw a higher chloride concentration, which is, again, something that we'd expect with normal saline. Even though lactated ringers has potassium in it, 4 millicolvins per liter, they did not observe a difference in potassium. And again, that lactate in lactated ringers is going to be converted to bicarb. And they actually did observe that people who got randomized to lactated ringers had higher serum bicarb levels than the normal saline cohort. Yeah, so I, I think as, as you've said, it, and I'll say, you know, is the usual support the idea that normal saline can be nephrotoxic. And I think that this was, at least in my mind, a little bit more surprising than, than I would have expected, to be honest with you. I would not have guessed that literally a median of one liter in both critically ill and non-critically ill patients could demonstrate a nephrotoxic effect in these two very large trials. And I think that for pharmacists or even any healthcare provider, moving away from normal saline on the basis of these two trials, even though they're single center, I think that given how large they were and how they designed the trial, I think it's reasonable to accept the fact, both from a biochemical basis and also now a clinical trial basis, that normal saline is nephrotoxic. So so what are there any barriers? What could prevent people from saying, all right, let's let's do this, let's just switch completely over? So there are a number of reasons why we don't use lactated ringers as our only IV fluid or IV crystalloid of choice. Uh, one issue is that lactated ringers does have that six milligrams per deciliter of calcium in it. 
And it's great that it has it if you need that calcium to help your blood clot. It's bad though because that calcium can cause IV Y site compatibility issues. And actually, if you look at one particular drug, rocephin or ceftraxone, it actually has a contraindication in the labeling that if you are less than 28 days old, so if you're a neonate, you should effectively not get LR and ceftraxone at all. Whether it's different times of day or not, it doesn't matter. And the reason is that they found that ceftraxone can precipitate with calcium-based salts. And in these very, very young patients, even if they separate the LR from the ceftraxone, they found precipitates of the calcium ceftraxone salts within the lung and kidney tissue of these very young children. So why site compatibility is an issue from the range of really, really young kids just shouldn't get both drugs at all, even if you separate the drugs, all the way to adults, if you have limited IV sites to give LR to, you may not be able to have enough places to kind of infuse all of your drugs that you need to if uh, line access is a problem for those patients. Interesting. So what about, let's say, you know, again, you hear the, you hear the term lactate and you think, okay, you know, we, we know certain diseases, things like lactic acidosis. So what if you were to give somebody lactate ringers if they had lactic acidosis? So in theory, it sounds like a really bad idea, right? So you already have too much lactic acidosis. Why would you give more lactate? And the important concept here is that in a bag of LR, lactated ringers, you're not giving lactic acid. You're giving, actually, it's weak base. You're giving sodium lactate. So this is a weak base that will grab hydrogen ions. It will go through the Krebs cycle and turn into bicarb. So this is something that um, is a misconception because it, even though, yes, you're giving the patient lactate, they convert that to bicarb, and you're giving something that acts as a buffer. It will find H plus ions and soak them up. So this will help not hurt in acidosis, and it effectively gets turned into bicarb that goes through the Krebs cycle and further helps with an acidosis. All right, what about, what about hyperkalemia? I know we talked a little bit about the data there. Yeah, so again, LR has four milliequivalents per liter of potassium in that 1,000 mLs of water that you're giving a patient. Again, we did not see any uh, signal of hyperkalemia in the SMART or the SALT-ED trial. This is a very small amount of potassium, and it's also diluted in a full liter of fluid. So we are diluting that out for the patient, and we're giving a very small amount of potassium. So if there is any effect on the patient's serum potassium level, it is very, very, very minimal. And some people actually argue that giving normal saline, which is acidic, could actually make hyperkalemia worse because as a patient gets more and more acidic, they will basically try to grab those hydrogen ions, put them in their cells, and then redistribute their potassium from their cells out into their blood. So giving a patient an acid can make their serum potassium levels get worse versus LR that has a more basic property to it because of that bicarb could potentially make that hyperkalemia better. Although... Even still, many clinicians are worried to give this potassium-containing product to a patient with hyperkalemia, and I get that, but we should understand that if the effect is there, it's very, very minimal, if at all. Uh, and so the one thing that always, you know, the cynic wants to think about is what about cost? How does that influence? Are we looking at big cost barriers if we start to implement the switch? So one of the really exciting things about the SMART and the SALT-ED trials is that we're basically having a number needed to treat of about 100 for literally no cost to the patient or to the institution. The IV one liter bag cost of LR versus normal saline is literally identical. There is no cost difference. And in fact, you could argue cost savings by avoiding dialysis in some of these patients, by avoiding acute kidney injury that could keep them in the hospital longer. Um, and potentially in that uh, critical care cohort, they came really close to showing a mortality difference with LR. 
So this is a cost-neutral, if not cost-beneficial strategy to take that patient away from normal saline and give them LR instead. All right, Dr. Kane, you've, you've convinced me. Well, we have to convince the rest of America because this is something that is deeply entrenched in every order set in every hospital in America. This is deeply entrenched in just how we're trained. You know, if you think about it, many of our IV products that we give are mixed in normal saline because it tends to be fairly stable and it doesn't cause issues with compatibility. So in a patient who's getting multiple IV piggyback riders, they're probably effectively getting a good amount of normal saline that could potentially be causing harm. And we don't even think about that because we just mix it um, and we don't even think about what is the diluent in that drug when we give it IV to a patient. All right. So I think now at this point, we want to kind of sum up some of the things we've already talked about. So the first thing we've said is is normal saline is kind of a misnomer. There's really nothing there that's normal. It has too much chloride. It's too acidic. Even there's concerns about the sodium content of it as well. And so even a normal or a standard dose of normal saline can produce electrolyte abnormalities and can even be nephrotoxic compared to balanced crystalloids. And number two is that these balanced crystalloids, by definition, these are IV fluids that are better matched from a pH or electrolyte standpoint, uh, especially versus normal saline. So they're more similar to human plasma. The most common balanced crystalloid is going to be lactated ringers or LR, but there's a bunch of other products that are on the market like isolite, plasmolite, things like that. These are all very similar in terms of their composition. The main difference is going to be how easy it is to come up with IV compatibility between any of these newer products versus LR. LR tends to have a lot more data with IV compatibility. And so again, there are some some concerns if we were to start switching. One of the things we, we've talked about is compatibility. So because of some of that calcium content, there's potential for IV compatibilities, you know, precipitations that can be problematic if you have limited IV access and have to give it through a Y site. And finally, lactated ringers has two main misconceptions that people need to be aware of. One, it does not worsen lactic acidosis because it isn't acidic. Um, And two, it does not worsen hyperkalemia because it comes with a lot of free water to go along with that potassium and it will actually help pH become higher. And so a lack of acidity plus that free water in the lactated ringers uh, will help it not worsen hyperkalemia. So with that, hopefully we've indoctrinated the Helix Talk audience into favoring lactated ringers over normal saline. I would encourage anyone in the hospital setting especially to consider changing order sets, changing your practice, identifying patients who are on normal saline that don't have a compelling reason to be on that normal saline, and switching them over to lactated ringers. Based on the data that we have, if you just switch 100 patients from normal saline to lactated ringers, you will prevent one patient from having a major adverse kidney event in the ICU setting, um, and even in the hospital setting as well, in that non-critically ill patient. So this is a, a cheap, simple intervention that can change patient outcomes. For the listeners who enjoy the podcast content, we're at helixtalk.com. We're also on Twitter at helixtalk. If you want to uh, message us with any topic suggestions, those are amazing. And so with that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And on behalf of Dr. Patel, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.